You are listening to Radio Boston. I'm Tiziana Deering. The push to electrify vehicles in Massachusetts kind of wanting a jolt. Buick is giving electric vehicles a joke. The a jolt. A, a, the iconic car maker is moving forward with plans to go fully electric. Now, some local dealers and dealers elsewhere think that Buick is moving too fast and that it's going to cost them way too much in the process. To talk about that, how that tension is playing out here, Boston Globe reporter Hiawatha Bray joins us now. Hiawatha, welcome back. Glad to be here. So did you like the way I tripped over almost every word in yeah. there? <laughs> well, you're, it's, it's the new year, you know. You're <laughs> still, you're still hungover. Hump day. Yeah, there you go. Okay. <laughs> so listen, this is really interesting to me because we have been watching this sort of race, the push me pull you right. of the state's race to electrify vehicles, the mm-hmm. country's race to electrify vehicles, right. and the challenges which you have called out in the past. Right. So now we've got this Buick thing, and you specifically wrote about GM's push to make its whole fleet of Buick vehicles electrified by 2030, but sort of being the first mover is creating some challenges. So let's talk about that. Well, they're not the first mover, of course, but you know, basically a lot of these car companies are committing to electric vehicles. Now, you know, early on when you did the program a promo, you said electric sales are slumping. No, they're not actually. Uh, this is, I don't think the final numbers are in, but it's expected that in 2023 for the first time Americans will have bought a million electric cars. Yeah. Vehicle sales of electric vehicles have been going up. The problem isn't that they aren't going up, it is that the rate of increase is starting to slow, slow down. down. Got and it. So the curve is slumping. That's a right. Bit. Got and it. it's also happening at the same time when all the big automakers had made this big commitment to start making more and more electric cars. With the result now that there's like a hundred, the way the industry does it is how many days of supply do they have of a particular kind of model? And these days there's like 40, 50 days supply of gasoline powered cars. Most of these places, they're now having hundred or more days of supply of electric cars. They're selling them, but they're not selling them as fast as they're getting in more electric cars. And part of the problem is that even with all the tax incentives that are being offered up, well, actually there are a couple of things. First, some of the incentives don't cover all of the cars. As you know, you have to have a certain percentage of the battery made in the United States before you can get the federal incentives. And there are a bunch of electric cars that don't meet that standard. I'm pretty sure that to this day, one of the most popular cars, what was it, the Nissan Leaf. Leaf. I think they still don't actually meet the federal standards, so you can't get a federal tax rebate for buying a Nissan Leaf. Uh, That's all going to change over time. But in the meanwhile, the other thing that's happening is that the people who went out and bought electric cars, they're affluent people. Usually it's a second car for them. And those kinds of people, a large percentage of them now have electric cars. You got to start selling them to the mainstream. And that, I think, is why the rate of growth has slowed down somewhat and they're not selling as fast as people would like them to sell. So when I said first mover, what's striking about Buick is they've said out loud, all our vehicles by 2030 are Uh going to be electric. And they are now, Buick dealers are pushing back and saying, you know, if you're not going to slow your roll, we don't necessarily want to go along with you, especially because of cost. That's what I took out of your article. I am willing to learn on air. So it's push a, back it's and a teach me. Good deal more, it's a fun story. It's a good deal more complicated than that. Okay. It's simply this. The dirty little secret driving the whole thing is they don't sell a lot of Buicks in this country. <laughs> That's the real problem. (laughs) Americans don't buy a lot of Buicks. And that's the big problem here because it turns out GM, back in 2022, voluntarily asked its dealers, if you guys want to stop selling Buicks, that's fine. Most people, as you know, I'm sure, most car dealers do not sell just one brand. They sell multiple brands. Multiple brands. And so what they're saying is, give up your franchise to sell Buicks. Did you know that there were 2,000 Buick dealers in the United States when they started that program? It's now down to about 1,000. Those 2,000 dealers in 2022 only sold about 103,000 cars. 
That's ridiculous. Meanwhile, Lexus. Lexus has 244 dealers in the United States. They sold over a quarter of a million cars out of just 244 dealerships. So this is a market correction. It's a market correction, Buick. And here's the other reason, but here's where the EV thing comes in. It I was going to say, so you, why are we talking EVs here? Because then? it costs something like $400,000 to prep your dealership to sell EVs. There you go. And these guys said, for Buicks, nobody's buying Buicks. And you actually <laughs> spoke to some Buick dealerships in Massachusetts. Well, no, I tried to. Actually, as part of the deal, they aren't allowed to talk to the press about their, their getting away from selling Buicks. You but got I talked confirmation. To the, right. And I, talked to, I got confirmation of at least four dealerships in Boston or in Massachusetts that have backed away. About half, no, 47% of all the nation's Buick dealers said we're out. But it turns out that 47% only sells about 20% of the nation's Buicks. They are saying we won't go electric for a car brand that simply we're not selling that many of in the first place. And when we have to spend this kind of money. When you have to spend as much as $400,000 to get ready to sell electric cars. Because this whole thing, that's another reason that people aren't really paying attention to this. We have to rethink the entire infrastructure of how we sell cars, how we service cars in order to sell electric cars. And they have to bring in all kinds of new training. I did a story about this last year. Yes, you did. Only a tiny percentage of the nation's auto mechanics are ready to fix electric cars. This is a problem that can be solved, but it's going to require a lot of training and a lot of investment. And some people are saying, we just don't want to do it. None of this is saying electric cars are a bust or anything like that. But this is the kind of hiccup that is going to happen as we move toward electric vehicles, and it isn't just because they're electric, it's because it also depends on things like which brand it is, how well they're doing, all that kind of stuff. But while it's happening, as I'm sure you've seen, all these car makers are cutting back. They've announced they're going to spend less money than they previously said on, on making electric cars, on building batteries. Uh, I think, was it was it Ford said they were going to reduce their investment by like $10 billion or something? I, I don't, don't hold me to that. I don't remember the exact numbers. But the major car makers in the U.S. are starting to back away, not because they're not going to build electric cars, but because the demand isn't as high as they were counting on. Okay, so we're speaking with Hiawatha Bray uh, of the Boston Globe. We are continuing a look that we are taking periodically at both the desire and the challenges Mm -hmm. around getting to this all-electric vehicle objective that that we have at the state level, that we have at the federal level, and this hiccup idea, which is really the focus here, the fits and starts, the challenges, the the desire to move, et cetera. You bring up uh, in your piece, Hiawatha, the range anxiety uh, uh, dimension as well. And we've spoken a couple of times with your uh, colleague, Aaron Pressman, about range anxiety as well. And what that basically means is the mainstream people, in part, may be less willing to invest in an electric vehicle because they're concerned about freedom of movement, availability of charging stations. Yes? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there's a significant chunk of Americans who drive long distances, maybe not all the time. Well, let's put it this way. There are some who drive long distance all, distances all the time. There are some who might do it two or three times a year to visit grandma's house or something like that. And for those people right now, an electric vehicle is highly problematic. Then there are people, well, I don't drive an electric vehicle. I have an old gasoline-powered car. I don't need a new car. But if I were in the market for a new car, I'd look at an electric vehicle because I'm your classic sweet spot kind of guy who takes relatively short trips and could charge at home. So the, the, the whole problem here is, I think, the attempt to make 
everybody go electric, which I think is highly problematic. Even in this California regulation, they're going to allow 20% of those clean cars to be plug-in hybrids because they recognize that some significant chunk of the population is going to need to be able to power their car through gasoline. And I think that's going to be true for a long time to come. And the idea of an all-electric fleet is, I think, well, excuse me, hit the mic there. That's I think right. the idea of an all-electric fleet raises real problems that people haven't fully taken on board. And that hasn't even gotten to the whole thing about chargers, the cold weather issue. Yes, they work fine in cold weather, but they take longer to charge and you don't get as much range. All of that kind of stuff that 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 keeps coming up, none of which make, makes electric cars totally impractical by any means. But, but the there's rush, a lot of hiccups. There's going to be a lot of hiccups along the way. All right. So we're with Hiawatha Bray here. Before you go, you had another story. And this is one of those cases. Do you, you know how sometimes, right, yeah. you're reading a story and you're drinking that cup of coffee or tea and it actually sort of <laughs> you actually sort of choke or it comes out your nose or yeah. you sort of spit it out. When I read this other story of yours, that happened. This is about the Northeastern team that takes all this data from Denmark, and they build an artificial intelligence system that does so much prediction that they actually attempt with some success, over right. 70% success, to predict how long people are going to live. Yeah, that and was that, cool. Yeah, cool. Okay, <laughs> your word, not mine, as mm -hmm. the coffee was coming through my nose. Right. But uh, So just tell us a little bit about this story. Right. Well, it turns out that Denmark has this thing called Statistics Denmark, where they have huge amounts of information about 6 million Danes. And some scientists in Denmark and some scientists at Northeastern said, what could we learn about these people's lives if we took a chunk of that data and, and trained it on an AI? So they took data on 6 million people from 2008 to 2009. 15. And just everything they could get. They have all kinds of stuff. Like per, they take personality tests. They have their names, their ages, their, 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 what kinds of jobs they do, how much education they have, on and on and on and on. And it turned out that they could make some amazing surmises about the future of these people past the training date. Like after 2015, what were these people going to do? Like, for example, they asked, are these people going to move out of Denmark? Are they going to emigrate to other countries? With about 70% accuracy, they predicted which of them would emigrate and which of them wouldn't. Uh, but the one that really got everybody's attention was post-2015, from the years 2016 to 2020, they took people ages 30, uh, 35 to 65 and asked, how many of them are going to die between the age of the period of 2016 to 2020? And they got it right 79% of the time. That's they really were able high. to predict which of them were going to live and which of them were going to die. So there were two things out of that in our remaining time yeah. that really struck me. One was it's Denmark data, so it's That's not right. like you can it take that It does not same, apply right? to Americans. If you wanted to do this in America, you'd have to use American data. But what they said to you was, listen, that kind of data exists out there. Oh, yeah. Someone could do it. Mm -hmm. And... This shouldn't be used to make certain kinds of decisions. Absolutely. It's, it, it, nobody knows. This it raises huge ethical problems, and we've got to start thinking about that. One example I gave in the story is, suppose you were able to predict whether or not a kid was going to do well in school. Now, that could be useful. You could use it as a way of giving him remedial education. Support. Or you could say, let's give up on this guy. The tests predict he's going to be a moron. Yeah. So we're not going to waste time teaching him. You could see how a society could use that information for good or for evil. And we're going to have to figure out because there's no question. I mean, it's not a really shock. If you know that much about millions of people, it's not totally shocking that you can predict their lives. But if you can predict it with that much accuracy, so you can say within this period of time, you're going to die. Within this period of time, you're going to either be a college drop out or you're going to be uh, an A student. That's the kind of thing you're going to figure out. How are we going to use that? Hiawatha, did you get any sense that the researchers at Northeastern got any either feedback or pushback or guidance on the ethics of their work 
from the university? Did that come up at all? Well, I don't think that's an issue because that nowadays a, a study like this is one of those things that goes through what they call an institutional review board. They would have had to clear this kind of study with an institutional review board before they could even do it. So, yeah, I'm sure they did that kind of thing. Whenever you're doing studies involving human data, you have to go to this board and say, is this ethical? Is this fair? Are you doing it right? So, yeah, I don't think that's a problem. Uh, but the information is very sensitive. They got permission from the Danish government to use this stuff. It's all very private information. It's not out there in the public. And yeah, this is a real issue. But what happens if, I mean, think about it. A lot of this kind of thing is going to be known to your bank. It's going to be known to Facebook. It's going to be known to all kinds. And that's one of the things they said. Private companies and governments already have most of this data. And for all we know, they're already doing this kind of thing. And we need to find out. Coffee coming out of my nose. <laughs> Boston Globe's Hiawatha Bray, thanks so much for joining oh, us. Oh, thanks for having me.